Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world that we Lots of wonderful folks make Northern Spirit Radio programs possible, including our board of directors and my production assistants, Andrew and Catherine. We've got some very special help today for Spirit in Action, as I'm preparing to take off for a three-day weekend with Quakers, so Robert Wolfe has offered to lend a hand, doing a lot of the metaphorical heavy lifting on today's program. I've had Robert sit in for me once before, and today we'll be co-hosting. We'll start off talking about his book, Building the Agricultural City, a Handbook for Rural Renewal. So the topic is globalism and its alternatives, localism and regionalism, among others. We'll talk, and then I'll turn the rest of the program over to Robert Wolf as he joins us from Decorah, Iowa. Robert, it's great to have you back for Spirit in Action, this time as co-host. Well, thank you, Mark, for having me. I appreciate it greatly. The last portion that you shared on Spirit in Action was about your collection of writings called American Mosaic. What have you been doing in the years since then? Well, I've been continuing to do writing workshops around the country and collecting stories by everyday Americans, but increasingly my focus is on regional decentralization, the building of regional economies in the country, which I see as an absolute necessity. Since the global economy is clobbering too many people in this country, and we need an alternative to this very overly centralized economy. What do you think of the bumper sticker, think globally, act locally? Does that still apply? I love it. I love it. But we've got to go beyond local to think regionally. And the reason is that, as I tell people here in Decorah, Iowa, you have to think outside. You have to not only strengthen your community, but you have to begin to strengthen neighboring communities. Because if, if your neighboring towns are going under, that's eventually going to affect you. I mean, we in Decorah, where I live, have a very healthy economy. We have a college, so we have a lot of young people, energetic people, and the college attracts others of all ages who are pretty vibrant folks. But it's a real contrast with our neighboring towns, which are really struggling. Postville, Iowa, which listeners have probably heard of because it was the subject of the largest immigration raid in this country, I guess about seven, eight years ago, at least maybe 10 years ago, that town has progressively been dying, and not just slowly, but rather precipitously dying. And the last time uh, my wife and I drove through, which was about two weeks ago, 80% of the storefronts were just empty. 
and some of the other towns are not all that far behind. The young people continue leaving the towns uh, for opportunity elsewhere and for cultural amenities that they don't get in their small towns. And the leadership is, is aging, and they're just there aren't the young people to take over the leadership position. So we have to do some serious thinking and some serious planning. As I say, it's outside the box. We have to consider radically different possibilities in order to keep rural America alive. And so what you've talked about is regionalism. You've featured that as a central tenant in your new book, Building the Agricultural City, a Handbook for Rural Renewal by Robert Wolf. How long have you been thinking about regional decentralization? It goes all the way back to at least 1994 when I wrote a six-part radio editorial for Iowa Public Radio on the need for rural regions to create decentralized economies. And that was in response to was Warren Rudman and Lindsey Graham had come out with a, a statement. Uh, well, they, were, they were trying to lower the U.S. deficit. That was their main concern at the time. And Lindsey Graham later said, or else it was Rudman later said, that if the U.S. didn't reduce its deficit, it was going to become the largest banana republic in the world. So I started thinking about how size area would it take to create an economy that was strong enough to avoid the trauma of another national depression. And that's when I began thinking regionally. My wife and I had moved up to northeast Iowa in 1991, and we'd driven around parts of contiguous states. We live in the Driftless region, and as we drove around southeast Minnesota and southwest Wisconsin we began, and a little bit of, of northwest Illinois, we began to see that these all shared a common topography of uh, hills and winding valleys. And that's when I realized that this topography could help with the whole process of, of a collaborative or development of a cooperative economy. And then, then I wrote that six-part radio editorial for Iowa Public Radio, which, by the way, won uh, the Sigma Delta Chi Award from the Society of Professional Journalists for the best radio editorial of the year. And then the Des Moines Register printed it as the lead editorial one Sunday. So there were some people listening to some of the issues that you were raising. Now, you know, we're in 2017. The electoral map has changed dramatically since 1994 when you first were thinking about decentralization, regionalism, really. Have we made that turn that you've been looking for? Increased numbers of people believe in it. I mean, they're working towards it. I mean, I have allies now. Whereas when I started in 94, most people I talked to in Northeast Iowa thought either I was crazy or it was just impossible to do. That centralization was just a fact of nature. As I say in the book, it's just something like the Adirondacks or the Pacific Ocean. There's nothing you're going to do about it. It's here. But now that social and economic structures seem to be crumbling, and we have a crisis in almost every function of the economy, people are looking for something that is that will further their own or maintain, perhaps, or even build their security and prosperity. I think so many people are now afraid of what's happening in this country and what the prospects are that, yeah, regionalism seems to make sense. This is something that we can band together. It's, it's not, we're not trying to reform the whole country. We're trying to, here in the Driftless region, 
band together and, and build an economy that helps all of us and build a culture at the same time. Let's talk about what the Driftless region is, because people who are listening over in California or up in Washington State over in Massachusetts may have no idea what it is. Could you describe it? And does it include, for instance, Viroqua, WDRT, which is one of the stations that carries this program? Does it include into Wisconsin, or are we only talking about in Iowa? No. Uh, it's southeast Minnesota, southwest Wisconsin, going up to your city, Eau Claire and uh, into northwest Illinois, and including Galena. And in Iowa, it starts at a town called Bellevue, and it goes north, includes Dubuque, and then it, as it moves up the Mississippi, it, it moves sort of like uh, in a northwesterly direction. I think, but what I've seen on the web, that the size of the Driftless region which, is, again, is, is a land of, of hills and valleys and beautiful farmsteads and farmland. It's about the size of Massachusetts. It's one of the most beautiful. It's as beautiful as any place in the country that I've seen or lived in. And some people refer to it as little Switzerland. And it, it has beautiful contoured fields. Of, well, it, things are changing now, but for many years, from the, I think probably from around sometime in the 30s, when uh, conservation began to be a concern. Instead of plowing straight uphill and downhill, farmers started planting in contoured strips. So until until this ethanol boom in the last few years, they were planting in alternating strips of corn and soybeans or, or uh, alfalfa. And it was quite beautiful. I mean, it's just uh, looking at the driftless landscape, say from a ridgetop, it's just, it looks like a, just a huge garden that is tended by farmers. It's beautiful. I feel very much at home here. And I would say that not only for myself, but for many of my friends who live in the Driftless region, we identify more with the Driftless than we do with our respective states. And that's going to be a huge help in building this, this regional economy. Again, the Driftless region is Driftless because the glaciers did not flatten out the land. Right. That's why it's got this wonderful contour to it. Does that mean that the Great Plains got hit by the glaciers? Yeah, they sure did. Yeah, they got scraped flat. And so the, the glaciers went around like twin lobes of a lung and went around this area. And drift, when a glacier recedes, it leaves drift behind. Uh, rocks and, and other kinds of scree, and since they didn't pass over here, we are driftless. Well, it, it's unfortunate that you get defined by what you don't have. <laughs> what yeah. you do, what you do have, is a beautiful scenic area. It is truly a beautiful area, and yet the point about this biological unity, this area that works in a certain way biologically. I think that's why we're focusing on the Driftless area. And there are certainly other biological identities throughout the United States and around the world that maybe make more sense than the arbitrary lines that were drawn for states. So your topic, the book, is Building the Agricultural City. What do you mean by that? What is an agricultural city? It's a cluster of towns that I can see working together on economic and cultural development. For example, up here in, in, north, in northeast Iowa, I'm going to pick out the four northeasternmost counties, two of them, Alamakee and Clayton, abut the Mississippi River. Winnesheek is just to the west of Alamakee, and Fayette is just to the west of Clayton. 
would like to see the towns there begin this process of cooperative work. On the one hand, there should be quarterly meetings of mayors, city managers, and economic development people. They should be consulting each other and talking about what they can do in terms of infrastructure, whatever the issues happen to be. But I think most of the impetus is probably going to come from grassroots. It's going to be non-governmentally pushed. The initiative will come from just non-elected citizens. That's the way it's been so far, although we had one very large meeting in Decorah with over 40 people attending this concept of the agricultural city. We had our mayor and our city manager and the city councilman uh, attend that meeting. And I see the agricultural city, see, I, well, the idea is to, instead of the town seeing themselves in isolation and everyone struggling to survive on their own, if they could reverse this vision of separateness and see the agricultural land as the glue that held the towns together, they should see their towns as neighborhoods within one city, a very different kind of city than is normally envisioned or exists. I I can envision two agricultural cities in Iowa, at least two in Minnesota, maybe two or three in Wisconsin, and one in uh, northwest uh, Illinois. And why do we need this? What's the important factors that make it imperative that we start focusing this way instead of the cities, towns, villages that we've been based on before? Right, because individually, we're not getting anywhere. Uh, It's only going to be in coordinated effort in uniting our strength, our intelligence, that we're going to be able to solve these problems. It's really an exercise in community development. And I see community development as a prerequisite for economic development until we can actually strengthen these bonds between towns and counties. We're not going to grow prosperity. We're not going to grow hope. So many of these towns are without without hope. I walk through or drive through some of the towns in northeast Iowa, and they just look, look hopeless. They look bleached. Too many storefronts are empty. And if, if a civilization loses confidence, that's that's the beginning of the end. So we have to restore confidence, and I think the only way we can restore that is through developing neighborliness and mutual concern. That if we're just concerned about ourselves, our town, we're going to fail. We're just going to go down the tubes. Way back when you were originally talking, Robert, you were saying that essentially our economy is crumbling. And of course, you know, when you talked about Postville, you could say, you know, 80% of the stores are shuttered. It has crumbled locally. What is a proper measure of a failing economy? And I, I think there are a number of people who say, well, look at this stock market is going up, up, up. We must be doing great. Other people say, well, see, the GDP has gone up by 2%, so therefore we're doing well. We've recovered. We're functioning as exactly as an economy should. What measures are indicative for you that the current economy is crumbling, and what would be the measures of a turnaround? Well, out here, one of the indicators of how we're doing is, is the numbers of people who are going to the food pantries and the number of people who are addicted to methamphetamine. What are the familial situations? What are the family lives are like? Let's get personal. I mean, this, the, the stock market, that, that's not an indicator of the real economy. 
either is GDP. I mean, what's really, it's the quality of life. What's the quality of life in my town? What's the quality of life in my neighboring towns? Do my neighbors have hope? Are they having to go to the food pantry to make sure that they get enough to eat? Are they going to social services for other helps, for drug addiction, for alcoholism? I actually agree with you, and yet there's a part of me which is scientific which says, well, there should be someone who's measuring it, and there are a number of alternative measures of well-being that include, for instance, life expectancy or health debt or you know drug addiction, all of these different things which should be measured instead of focusing on a pure number, a GDP kind of number. Are you aware of anyone who's actually doing those kind of measurements? Because otherwise we could just be looking at the one person who's starving or the 20 people who are starving and ignoring the 3,000 people who are prospering. Where's your overall picture coming from? Just by looking around your neighborhood, I imagine. It is, but then in the past I've, I've gone to Iowa State Extension's figures. They publish figures on each town, you know, demographic information. And so they will talk about the statistics on poverty, uh, education, but there are various measures that Iowa State uses that are helpful in, in uh, getting a, an accurate picture, a more scientific picture. So you've got this vision, Building the Agricultural City, which is the book that Robert Wolf has written, a handbook for rural renewal. You happen to be living in Decorah, Iowa, which is a town of about 8,000 people. There's a university there that, with a college there, you have, I guess, a wider share of culture than most towns of 8,000 would have. A pretty wonderful college, actually, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. How hard is it to get people on board with this idea? How do you bring together these ideas for cooperative economic development there must be obstacles that are making this hard to do. Yeah, there are all sorts of obstacles. First of all, it's most of the towns, there's an aging population, and naturally most of the elderly or, or very elderly are just not going to get engaged, and they're probably resistant. I mean, you, you know as well as I do that there's a very conservative culture in many of these towns, so there is an opposition to any sort of change. I think it is probably considering the insecurity of our times that that may be cracking somewhat but it's it's definitely still there a friend of mine who's mayor of Guttenberg tells me about the divisions within his town and he doesn't even think it'd be worth my while to go out there and try to talk about these ideas and I have gone to uh, towns uh, a variety of towns and in some as in La Crosse and Decorah there's a good turnout and in other towns, in Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, there are actually just two people. But for one thing, I'm planting seeds, and I may not live to see any, any fruit grown, but it's something that I have to do. And so the book is a marketing tool. We're also doing a film called Building the Agricultural City, which illustrates some of the ideas, the key ideas from the book. And I'll be going around giving public showings of this. It'll be on Vimeo so people can get links and see it. And some people are going to respond more to the film than they will to the printed word. And then we're going to do infographics. I've had in the past two years the AmeriCorps volunteers helping me on this project, so I know that, that young people can be huge aids for this, and they embrace the idea. And so hope really lies with them. I think, more than any other group. 
I think there's a little bit about the functionality of an agricultural city that I haven't fully brought in. And though I've had this idea myself, I my question is, how large does an entity need to be such that, I don't know, 85, 75% of its economy is internally supplied? It only needs to get 20% from elsewhere. Now, that's kind of how functionally I would think of defining it. Obviously, cities as we know them now they're not feeding themselves, they're depending on neighboring regions. And so the functions of feeding oneself wouldn't need to be incorporated within the agricultural city. Are there other functions that need to be incorporated within the agricultural city such that it would actually function? Yeah, furniture making, cabinetry. Why not building? I mean, we could grow, we could begin reforesting areas. I mean, I'm just thinking ideally, not necessarily practically, but but uh, when the first people came to these, this area, obviously they were they were quarrying limestone and doing a lot of building with limestone, and they were uh, milling their own timber or getting it from downriver from northern Wisconsin. In, and in terms of financing, originally I was thinking of community development banks as a means of financing small business startups and creating affordable housing. But now I read last night that our government is doing away with a fund that was earmarked for community development banks. And there are only 66 in this country, a small number, but they're very effective in what they do. What will take the place of a community development bank if they, if they can't fulfill this deed? Well, we could create large investment groups where we, we put a limit on the amount any one individual can invest. So that for two reasons. One, if, that, if one or more people pull out, it does not collapse the group. And for another, if it could be, uh, we could democratize. If the larger the group, the larger the number of people investing in this, the more democratic it is, the more people who have a vested interest in the well-being of the of the region it seems to me robert that you have some energy against the globalization movement that's not an understatement i hope i mean i realize yes globalization is a failing philosophy for our world so when we get someone like donald trump as president is this good news for decentralization that he didn't want us to be in the Trans-Pacific Partnership and maybe pull out of NAFTA? Is that good news for us? I would say it's good news to get out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. I don't know about NAFTA. But just generally speaking about Trump, he's created enough chaos and insecurity that that's good news for the possibility of regionalization. I mean, people are going to look for structures that, that will help uh, shore up what we have and build upon so we can, again, create a human-centered society and not a society where we are at present where the human being is at the periphery. We need to make the human being central. And so going back to an earlier question, I mean, how do we know when we've gone too far is if we started creating an, uh, or a society here or an economy here in the Driftless region, that was highly technological. Obviously, that was that was a failure. I'd say then we failed. We have to get people working with their hands. I think we in the West lost a lot 
with mechanization, we lost, we, we lost the ability to work with our hands, to use our heads and our hearts in our work. We need to develop work that, that uses our heads and our hearts and our hands. And if I could look around and I could see that there was that kind of, of society and a society which, which questioned the uh, unlimited proliferation of technologies and other techniques, I'd say, oh, that's, that's pretty good. We, we've done it. Well, you know what I think I want to do now, Robert, is since you are sitting in actually as co-host today for Spirit in Action, I want to inform our listeners that you are tuned in to Northern Spirit Radio, Spirit in Action. Our website is northernspiritradio.org. On that site, you find links to our guests. When you want to track down Robert Wolf and Building the Agricultural City, you can find links via our site. There's also links to all of our guests of the last almost 12 years. You'll find a place to post comments. Make our communication two-way by posting your comment when you visit. There's a place to donate. This is full-time work, and it's only supported by your dollars, not by those from either corporations or governments. So we depend upon you, and if you want this work to go forward, we need your help. And the other organization I would like you to support is your local community radio station. Local media is so important, and it's actually a natural complement to the agricultural city. You need local voices, local views in order to prosper locally. So please remember to start by supporting your local community radio station. So, Robert, I'm going to turn things over to you. You can finish out the rest of the program Again, Building the Agricultural City, folks, Robert Wolf is sitting in as co-host today. Thanks so much for joining us. And I'm going to sign off and turn it all over to you, Robert. Well, thank you very much, Mark. Thank you. And we're going to start this half of the program by listening to a song by a friend of mine, a singer, songwriter, and farmer in North Dakota, Chuck Suki, West Dakota Breezes. chapter from Building the Agricultural City, and this is called Regionalism, an idea whose time has come. E.F. Schumacher gave us a great gift with his collection of essays, Small is Beautiful, Economics as If People Mattered. His book influenced many who pondered the interlocking questions of poverty, industrial production, and appropriate technology. Among other things, It proposed that the migration of people from rural areas to large cities could be slackened or halted 
by creating appropriately sized industry within rural regions. He addressed the matter of rural development in his essay, Social and Economic Problems, Calling for the Development of Intermediate Technology. A given political unit, he wrote, is not necessarily the right size for economic development to benefit those whose need is the greatest. In some cases, it may be too small. But, in the generality of cases today, it is too large. This addresses the crux of the rural problem, but it also takes on what is perhaps the greatest of urban problems, sheer, overwhelming size. Schumacher was proposing economic decentralization by building business and industry in rural areas. In 1930s America, regionalists like Lewis Mumford and Benton Mackay were proposing the same remedy to address the imbalance between rural and urban. Hands are cold And so's the wheel The tractor's old And so's the field In the promise of This chilly morn A West Dakota breeze is somewhere born The matter of size in government, industry, and finance can be described in terms of centralization and decentralization. Centralization in America got into high gear in the late 19th century. And by 1900, regional economies and cultures were pretty much a thing of the past. As regional industries were displaced by their larger urban counterparts, the decentralized regional economies faded and a homogenized culture replaced regional folkways. Centralization and decentralization in themselves are neither good nor bad, and some degree of each is needed to maintain a healthy society. An adequate degree of centralization in government coordinates the work of its bureaus and agencies. Centralization represents the tendency toward order and coherence. Decentralization represents the complementary tendency toward individuality. Pushed to their extremes, centralization becomes totalitarian, and decentralization devolves into anarchy. Looking back Plows black wake Where seagulls come And claim their take As this old trawl Plows a prairie sea A west Dakota breeze Mechanization and the Human Face The centralization of American government, finance, and industry has grown extreme to the extent that it governs our life and work. Such a system cannot long endure, and our various environmental and social breakdowns are evidence of an ongoing crisis. There is an aura of automatism about all our activities, as though our technologies had a life of their own. 
Everything in our system is beyond the control of the individual. Our institutions and corporations have grown too large. Everything exceeds human scale and has become inhuman. It is imperative that we construct political and economic units in which people can once again find a home. Is there a means by which we can construct a society in which the human being is central, not peripheral, with an economy that serves us, one in which it is understood that nature has tolerance limits and that by crossing them too often we will destroy the foundation of our existence? Can we construct a society in which work is meaningful, one in which our voices are heard? What is regionalism? Regionalism is precisely the means by which we can reconstruct society with a human face if we have the collective will to do it. Regionalism is a form of decentralization and is at odds with our overly centralized system which seeks to impose uniformity in every sphere of activity. Our mechanized and centralized culture produces developments with cookie-cutter houses cities that look remarkably similar, and best-selling books that are written by formula. People living responsibly within a region and whose sensibilities respond to the environment will create an architecture, art, and literature that is shaped by it. A poetry that reflects the pace, activities, and landscape of New England will necessarily differ from verse created in the Great Plains that seeks to interpret the life and environment of that region. Likewise, a sustainable economy within each region will respond to the availability of its resources rather than impose an agricultural or manufacturing system that has no place within it. Our resource-depleting economy, for example, has been using the Great Plains as farm and cattle country, but to sustain crops and cattle there, we have to irrigate and are consequently draining the Agalala Aquifer. Regionalism creates a home for us. People find greater identification within an area demarcated by a common topography than with an area described by arbitrary state boundaries. Regionalism fosters local production over the importation of goods. This means, for example, building with local materials, which in turn might mean constructing lumber mills or reforesting the landscape, building a brickworks, reopening limestone quarries, and so on. It means developing a local food system. Money then recirculates within the region. Regionalism can work to retain its wealth in other ways. It can do this by building community development banks to create local housing and businesses. Regionalism fosters a regional culture. Regionalism promotes the arts as a means of maintaining regional consciousness. Regional consciousness, in turn, 
fosters a willingness to work together, which in turn creates wealth. Regionalism can enable rural America to maintain population. The development of local businesses and the encouragement of entrepreneurs create jobs within the region, enabling the population to stabilize and grow. By creating jobs and otherwise keeping money circulating within itself, a rural region can retain many of its youth. Regionalism is what Lewis Mumford called a collective art. The establishment of local food systems, local and regional industry, and cultural activities are all part of a great cooperative enterprise. The process of getting people to participate on a large scale will take time, but getting people on board a few at a time eventually creates a momentum that attracts greater numbers. Early American history is replete with examples of local and regional self-reliance, from the Spanish Southwest to Yankee New England, from Chesapeake Bay to the Carolinas in Georgia. Indeed, if the Europeans who initially settled this country had lacked self-reliance, our history would have been remarkably brief. Who can say with certainty that the obstacles and constraints that Americans face today in creating a human-centered regional democratic civilization are greater or less than those faced by our forebears who first arrived in the American wilderness? But face the constraints we must. Today, the lack of money for local programs makes it imperative that cities and counties provide their own solutions to their own problems with their own resources and funding. Regional projects, which involve the cooperation of several counties or cities, are far more cost-effective than the same project replicated in multiple cities or counties. County school consolidation in rural America is one clear example of sub-regional cooperation. Stars dim in heavenly The moon's rising just over the hill Evening's quilt falls on me A west coat of Brings in a chill This old horse Pulls steadily The engine drones Dreamily Blue flames dance From the exhaust and a west Dakota breeze blows at my back. What regionalism is not. First, regionalism is not an exercise in fence building. Regional boundaries are indeterminate. There are no sharp demarcations between adjacent ecosystems. For example, the short grass of the Midwest blends imperceptibly into the tall grass of the Great Plains, and the Great Plains in turn blend into the semi-arid regions of the Southwest, 
and these in turn, by slow degrees, are transformed into desert. An economy centered in any one region is bound to have close cultural and economic ties to towns and cities in adjacent regions, as they do today. An aggressive region, like Cascadia of the Pacific Northwest, will seek to export its goods globally. Second, the regional societies that I think may evolve will not be governmental units. They will not have legal status. They will consist of a network of contracts and agreements between privately owned businesses, corporations, and governments, federal, county, and municipal. They will, of necessity, carry on trade nationally and internationally. Third, regions as viable economic and cultural entities will not be the product of any government. If regional civilizations reappear in this country, they will originate with and grow through grassroots efforts. Clearly, no existing governmental structure, neither state nor federal, is going to abrogate its own authority. Local food or energy systems will be created by individuals working cooperatively. Someday I'll die With trees and grass On some hill I'll lie It will come to pass It pleases me Let this body be Where a west Dakota breeze blows over me A west Dakota breeze blows over me I'm Robert Wolf. I'm here at the studios of WDRT in Viroqua, Wisconsin, with my friend Lori Harms. Together we're going to read a scene from a play I wrote called Driftless Dreams. This scene is entitled County Wars. Let me tell you about the county seat war here years ago. The town that was the county seat had the best chance of surviving because the railroad would be built to it. So there were these fights for survival. This was everywhere in the early settlement days. One group of citizens from one town would come and steal the county records from the town that had them and take them to their town. Back in the 1840s, when Alamakee County was first laid out, Lansing was county seat. I'd say it was 150 years ago. I'm from Lansing. Wakan stole our county records three times. In those days, I'm talking about the 1840s, 1850s, Lansing was two towns. Can you believe it? There was Lansing, and right next to it was, I mean, right next to it was Village Creek. Can you believe that? No one from the outside could tell there was two towns. Anyway, first Village Creek was county seat, then Lansing. What you got to understand is that in those days, the county seat had the best chance of surviving. The railroads would build to a county seat where they wouldn't build to nothing else. If you was a county seat, you could survive. Back then, there were dozens of little towns in this county. Most towns disappeared. 
Naturally, everyone wanted to be the county seat. Towns all over the Midwest fought for it. So Wakan stole our records. That's why a bunch of guys, including my great-grandfather, got two wagons and hitched up two teams and drove down to Lansing one night. They broke into the courthouse and stole our records. We loaded them up and got them about three miles outside of town by the time Lansing got a posse together. Oh, hell, a bunch of people got their rifles and jumped on horseback and took after them walk-on guys. Caught them just two miles outside of town and made them surrender the records. We raided their courthouse maybe two more times until we finally got to keep them. The last time they stole the records, we went to court over it. And can you believe it? They got to keep them. Must have had a bunch of their friends on the jury. Some people never got over that. I was with a friend from uh, Lansing in a Wakan bar, and a fellow from Wakan he knew walked in. And my friend asked him where he could rent a dump truck. The fellow scratched his head and walked to the other end of the bar. In five minutes, he came back and said, Yeah, I know where you can rent one. What do you want it for? I had to take the county records back to Lansing. Boy, I'm telling you, that fellow blew up. They came very close to banging on each other with their fists. The problem of rivalries has not been solved, but a start is being made here and there. Individuals and organizations across America have initiated local energy and local food systems to increase local self-reliance. But self-reliance and greater regional self-sufficiency cannot be achieved simply by building a factory here or a processing plant there. If cooperation and the ability to look beyond short-term interests were not at root, the problem of economic justice would have been solved long ago. But the root of the problem is with us. Our individualism has created our fragmented society. Enlightened self-interest must prevail. The alternative, individualism taken to its logical conclusion, is appalling. Saturday night at the hall 
of the 1920s, it was obvious to many observers that industrialization was homogenizing the United States. By the Great Depression, artists and writers were focusing more attention than ever on the American scene, depicting closely and with affection the life and folkways of their regions. Many of the artists and writers were perhaps recording regional life in the hopes of preserving memories of what had once existed. The 1920s and 1930s were the heyday of regionalism. Regionalist artists Grant Wood, Thomas Hart Benton, and John Stewart Curry were national figures, but there were a score or more of other fine painters interpreting the rural countryside and the teeming cities, often painting what they saw on post office walls. We had writers like John Steinbeck and John Dos Passos, Carl Sandberg and Langston Hughes, to name just a few, who were creating a mosaic of America through novels, short stories, plays, and poetry. America never had a richer hall of art and literature. The wealth of what they created is, to my mind, the greatest treasure of American arts and letters. Regionalism had its theorists, too. Men like cultural critic and generalist Lewis Mumford and Benton Mackay, who designed the Appalachian Trail, both were members of the Regional Planning Association of America. Mumford, Mackay, and their colleagues felt that the revitalization of the country depended upon decentralizing industry and banking, for the webs of the power complex were and remain centered in urban areas. What Mumford and his friends envisioned was a limit to the growth of existing cities by infusing rural towns and areas with industry and the cultural institutions of the large city. It would mean creating what Mumford called regional cities. Beyond that, Mumford wanted regional cities to aggregate into regions bound together by ties of art and literature, language and folkways. Mumford's biographer, Donald Miller, says Mumford believed that these tied people together more than social structures or ideology. Indeed, most regionalists, as creative writers, artists, and theorists, believed it too. B.A. Botkin, who compiled many folk literature anthologies, voiced the general notion when he wrote, the motifs, images, symbols, slogans, and idioms of regionalism could bring about regional class and other forms of collective consciousness. Regionalists were clustered about the country, so naturally the centers of regionalism lay in the outlands themselves, in Taos and Santa Fe, in Lincoln and Iowa City, in Nashville and Chapel Hill, in Austin and Missoula. With the exception of Mumford, who lived in New York City until 1936, the spokesman for regionalism worked outside the clusters of the power complex, the loci of the webs. What all shared was a desire to bring into existence a quilt work of culture spanning the country, which meant that regionalism was a theory of decentralization rooted in specific locality and to the earth. But there was not always agreement as to how to define a region. What bound this mix of regionalists together was the understanding that modern culture, thanks to mass communication, rapid transportation, and assembly line production, was producing a uniformity of experience and thought among Americans. Above all, these modern instruments were producing a new psychology, a new individual, one without rootedness in place, without ties to the land, without community, 
one who acted from motives of expedience rather than from loyalty and truth. Thus none of the regionalists wanted a repetition of their own machine-dominated society, but rather a new civilization based upon a renewed humanism, animated by folkways, and an art derived from local life. Art for all of them was crucial to the project, a conveyor of meanings. On a Saturday night, beneath the prairie moonlight, you could hear the accordion call. Over and over, I hear it again. Saturday night at the ball. Saturday night, oh what a night, Saturday night at the ball. Thank you all. My pleasure. That music is from Chuck Suki, a fine North Dakota farmer and musician. The song is Saturday Night at the Hall, a song that Chuck asked us to share with Northern Spirit Radio listeners. Robert Wolf of Decorah, Iowa, was today's co-host talking about building the agricultural city. We'll have Robert back again on Northern Spirit Radio in the near future. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song.